All right. I want to begin today, before I even do the introduction to this series, I want to read a text from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 24. Uh, Matthew 24 begins a series, uh, what's sometimes called the Olivet Discourse, and then a series of statements by Jesus in parable form related to questions that his disciples ask him at the temple. Uh, when he tells them that the temple is going to be destroyed, it's just about to be finished being built. Uh, and so he says not one stone will be left on a stone. So in Matthew 24, verse 3 through 14, we have these words. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming, and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am Christ. In other words, they'll claim Jesus as the Christ. They're not claiming to be the Christ themselves. And will mislead many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not the end. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. In various places there will be famines and earthquakes. All of these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time many will fall away and will betray one another, and hate one another. And false prophets will arise and mislead many. And because lawlessness, Torahlessness, is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Moving away from the commandments of love, they won't love. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So Jesus in these words gives us this end time scenario in fairly general terms. Famines, earthquakes, wars, all of those things are not a sign of the end of the world. The sign of the end of the world is going to be worldwide hatred of Jews and Christians. And then he will go into more detail when he talks about the abomination of desolation in that context. When you become hated for my namesake around the world, that will be the sign that we're nearing the end. So, if you were living in southeastern Texas this past week, you would have been warned about a coming storm that is bringing potential property damage and life-threatening circumstances. We've all been watching that on TV. You would have been able to watch the signs of the coming storm as the waves increased and as the clouds increased and decide the reality of the threat and your options for dealing with it. Now your decisions would have been altered by several things. Your experience with storms from the past. Your family and the threat to them, if you had a bunch of little kids, you might want to move out. If you're older, you might have said, I'm just going to stay and, and ride it out. Uh, your belief that the danger is real. 
I don't trust the media. <laughs> Maybe there's no store out there. Uh, your personality regarding threat and risk and coping uh, uh, ability, your own assessment. Some people are challenged by those things, and other people say, I'm getting out of Dodge or Dallas or Houston, right? Um, and then other things that are going on in your life. If you are taking care of elderly people that can't be moved, you might stay, right? All of these things come into your uh, ideas. Now, what I've described is about imminent threat. When we have imminent threat, people tend to panic or act quickly or run away or deny the reality of the threat. The immediacy of the threat tends to put us into focus and into action. But when everybody is in focus and everyone is in action and everyone is in panic, then the danger is increased. Uh, just like someone yelling fire in a, in a theater, people can get hurt not by the fire, even if there's no fire, but by the stampede of people, everybody trying to get out. Now, if you live in California, as we do, uh, you have little concern about such storms. We get so few and they're usually not severe. So we just kind of watch it on TV and are concerned if we have friends or relatives in that area. But we do get fires and that varies based on where you live. And the same multiple factors for prior preparation happens. However, the difference is the fire is not burning and coming towards you. It's just that we're in the threat of fires. So our sense of imminence and our sense of doing something about it lessens. We also face earthquakes in California. And here, while the claim uh, is that the threat is a certainty and the level will be extremely significant, most of us do very little to prepare. A small quake may make us go out and buy water, right? Some batteries. We'll do some small steps, but pretty soon we sleep that off and we're back to our normal notion. The Bible warns us of a coming storm of threats to our faith. Now this is focused in the final end time scenario that I just read, but throughout the history of Judaism and Christianity, persecution and suffering has been a common occurrence in different places where God's people wait for the kingdom to come. One notable exception to this has been the United States. This is in part because our culture has been significantly influenced by the Judeo-Christian values and worldview. But a storm is approaching. So I want to describe uh, that storm through the books that we are reading. So let me uh, talk about those. Then I'm going to describe the circumstances that have gathered to bring the storm to us. And that's all I have time this week. Next week I'll talk about what the implication is for us and for our children as we go through this. As a congregation, we read two or three books each year to supplement our knowledge of the faith and to give us context for congregational dialogue and discussion. This year we're reading three books. One of them is The Benedict Option. This is the main book that we're reading. If you're only reading one, this is the one you should be reading. The second one is called Strangers in a Strange Land, written by the Archbishop of Philadelphia. 
living the Catholic faith in a post-Christian world. This is a very good book. Uh, has a somewhat different view because it's coming from a Catholic perspective where the, the worldwide Catholic Church has great experience with these kinds of things. And then one written by a more evangelical type, Out of the Ashes, Rebuilding Americans' Culture. This guy is probably the least in touch with uh, what the future is going to be. He's more focused on what's happening, and we got to stop it now. So he's more about fixing the culture. These two books are more about how do we live in a culture that's already changed. And I'm going to make the argument that the culture's already changed. That, that in most cases, people are closing the barn door after the horse has already left. Okay? Uh, it reminds me a little bit of uh, the, the movie, The Bible in the Beginning. Some of it's not biblical. So Noah is uh, building the ark and... His wife says, I need one of the boys to help me fix the roof. Or when the rain comes, this, we're, the whole house is going to be wet. And Noah says, but wife. And then he thinks about the argument that's going to ensue. And he says, okay, you can have Japheth. <laughs> uh, you know, she's going to fix that roof because she doesn't want to leave a house uh, leaking, with a leaking roof, even if it's carried away by all, all the flood. Uh, so, uh, our primary text is the Benedict Option, and uh, we're going to look at that. Those books are suggesting that the American culture has shifted, and the churches at the present time are not prepared or preparing for the storm that will come as a result of the shift that's already taken place. Each of these books argue that the American culture is rapidly changing and that the changes being made are a major challenge to the Judeo-Christian faith. And they all argue that the way forward for the believer will be difficult and threatening for ourselves and for our children. The books vary in the specifics of the threat, uh, though there is much that they have in common, and they offer a multiplicity of approaches to that threat. They're going to talk about education, they're going to talk about family, they're going to talk about uh, how we function in the culture, all those things, somewhat differently. In this series, I'm going to draw from their ideas and combine them with our own as the Disciple Center has been addressing this. The fact is that the Disciple Center has been preparing for this for almost 20 years. It was the reason we formed the Disciple Center. And for many of us, particularly those who founded the Disciple Center, we have been preparing for this for 40 years. I was at one time a voice crying in the wilderness, uh, and now I am called regularly by pastors and people of prominence in the church world who realize now that I was correct. And they didn't follow the advice I gave them. They're in trouble. And the answer is, what can we do now? And I have very little to say to them. This is the problem of the foolish virgins. Who think they can, last minute, run to Home Depot and get the stuff they need. So, I want to talk about two things. What has happened to the culture? 
And I have to do that in broad strokes. Most of this you've heard bits of it before. And so uh, I just want you to understand this is not about one area of the culture. It is a sea change in the ultimate sense of the word. Uh, so what's happened in the, in the culture? In the last 80 years, really the whole last century and the current century, we've really got 120 years, but in 80 years, following uh, World War II, the American culture has shifted. So much so that the America that I grew up in and some of you grew up in is much more like 1776 America than 2006 America. There's a watershed difference in, in that context. Now, for most of your children, for all of your children, and for many of you, you grew up on the other side of that change. And therefore, what seems normal to you is frightening to those of us who come from the other side. And it's easy to dismiss what we say as old fuddy-duddy talk. So, one of the things that changed was America shifting from a melting pot perspective of its culture to a pluralism. Now, America has always been a melting pot uh, immigrant-based country. Very few people are indigenous to America. Most of us can trace our ancestors to other countries in the world. And the idea was that you came from that country, you somewhat gave up that culture, you somewhat gave up that worldview, you now became to function as an American, and you would assimilate into this culture that was about rugged individualism and freedom and pursuing uh, happiness and all of those kinds of things. And economic security was not promised, but it was possible. And you didn't have to continue in the pathways of your ancestors. In the 1940s and 50s and 60s, America went through the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement created a change in our thinking. And it is best understood by two people, uh, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Martin Luther King was pushing the melting pot to its full issue. I want the individual to not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, and I want each person to be able to be allowed in. America needs to be allowed to do that because that's its founding documents. Malcolm X said, can't be done that way. We have to function as groups. We have to be pluralistic. We have to let the different communities have their own community standards so that they can have political power as groups. We gave Martin Luther King a holiday and we went the direction of Malcolm X. And so now, groupthink is much more part of the American culture and you can come from another culture and not assimilate 
into the American ideal. All you need is economic freedom and you can keep your culture and you can keep your identities and you can do that and you can create new identities and new groups. Pluralism versus melting pot is one of the shifts. I'm not talking about whether it's good or bad. I'm just talking about what happened. Secondly, we moved from rugged individualism to radical individualism. Rugged individualism was the idea that when you came here, you were up against an environment. You had to struggle to make it. But if you struggled, you might make it. You set your own direction, but you need people to help you. <coughs> so rugged individualism had an idea of communal cooperation. We have now moved to radical individualism where any individual who has any view must be allowed to be acceptable. And it doesn't have to be based on any objective truth. Now the reason for that is the third thing I want to talk about. We move from modernity to postmodernity. Modernity was the idea that there is an objective reality and an objective truth and those could be discovered either by science or by reason or by biblical revelation. Truth and reality could be known. Postmodernity says nothing can be known for certain. And therefore the only thing I can trust with certainty is my experiences and my feelings. Now you add radical individualism with my experience is valid and my feelings are valid. You, and then I only group with people who think and feel like me. You've got a very different kind of world. The next thing is we extended adolescence in the 1940s. 15, 16, 17, 18 year olds fought and won World War II. They operated the most incredible equipment that the world had ever seen, and they were adults. And life was hard. The war was hard, marriage was hard, and they said, I don't want my kid to have that tough a time. And so we began to develop this movement towards going from childhood to adulthood, going through a period called adolescence, and that started as two years to the age of 14, then to 16, then to 18, then to 21, and now to 30. The idea was we're not going to force people to grow up. You know that people only grow up if they're forced. We're not going to force people to grow up. We're going to allow them to grow up, which makes them narcissistic, and makes them coast wherever possible. So we have extended adolescence and delayed maturity. Because most traditional cultures go from childhood to adulthood. And the signal that you're an adult is puberty. Because you're able to reproduce. Most cultures raised you to be an adult at puberty so you could marry and have a family and work subsistence work. We extended adolescence. We dropped off maturity and therefore had to rethink sexuality, marriage, and reproduction. So we separated reproduction from marriage. 
we separated sex from marriage and made marriage really something that is about your feelings and about if you want it, it's okay, but you don't really need to do that. You really want, you can go on with your sexuality. You can have children if you want, but you can avoid that. And we set, we created a new understanding of marriage, family, and reproduction. And um, the American culture has redefined marriage and redefined parenting and redefined all of those things. We moved from the government being the, uh, from the family being the primary institution to the government being the primary institution. In the past, if you had a problem, you went to family, they helped you. Now, you go to government, they help you. And government does this in a bureaucratic structure based on the individualism and in some sense uh, uh, in opposition to the idea of family help. And then, post-World War II, the radio followed by the TV, followed by the transistor radio, followed by televisions and movies and uh, media and internet and podcasts and all of this put us into a framework where information is bombarding us 24-7. We're manipulated and reinforced by ubiquitous media in a 24-7 opinion radio and TV. Real little news or critical thinking exists in those forums. And the schools are no longer about teaching, reading, writing, and critical thinking. They're about job preparation, and they're about uh, just getting you through the, the basics. So what you know how it works. You learn... Uh, American history in 5th or 6th grade, you don't learn it. So you're taught it again in 8th grade, you don't learn it. You're taught it again in 10th grade, you don't learn it. It's then gen ed in college and you don't learn it. In other words, education is not about learning. It's about short-term memory, being able to pass a standardized test and go on. And I see it constantly as the generations have happened. I believe that a college education today is about equivalent knowledge and critical learning skills to a junior high, maybe uh, 10th grade level of when I was in high school. So we have expanded it, but we have dumbed it down. Then there's another big push, and that is secularism and globalism. We are now focused on secular, a no-God zone, which is rapidly diminishing any place for God and for religion, and globalism, where the idea is we're looking for international laws and some kind of utopian system where we will eradicate poverty, we will eradicate anger, we will eradicate wars through governments working through that Themselves, because the government is the primary institution. So the United Nations is really the United Governments. It's not the people. Two more things on the culture, and I'll be done with that. We have the latest buzzword is social justice. 
This social justice is humanistic social justice. It's the idea of a utopian approach to human problems that solves problems by a simplistic approach. We will simply redistribute everything and it will work. We will compensate for people who have been uh, harmed and that will take care of it. And the idea is that somehow if we do that, then everybody will come to an equal place and equality of outcome will match the equality of starting. Now the problem with that, and you all know this, if you've ever played Monopoly, you know what happens. Monopoly, everybody has an equal start. And within a few rolls, somebody's got a lot of money and somebody's got none. And if you redistribute again in a short term, it will happen again. And it will happen again. Because human nature and random issues that happen are not going to go away. No government can control that. If they could, Houston wouldn't be in trouble right now. So the reality is that it's a utopian pipe dream done on paper. The biblical notion of human justice is if you have done somebody wrong, you must compensate them. The justice system now is if somebody in your past did somebody wrong and somebody in their past was wronged, we will take from you to give to them and that will make it right. That is not biblical social justice. That's utopian social justice. I think it's dangerous. And then recently we have developed the notion of if anybody disagrees with anybody, they are considered part of a hate group. And we are going to be tolerant for anything except what we're intolerant of. And so the people who speak the most of tolerance appear to be the most intolerant of all. And the one group that is allowed to be hated is anything associated with the historical America. And it's easy to find problems there. And the primary institutions that influence that historical America, even to solve some of those problems, which is the religious community. So that's already happened. That's the America you and I live in now. And if you don't believe that, you have been in a bomb air raid shelter for way too long. Uh, it's clearly out there. Now what about the Christian community? What's happened in the church? Well, those of us who uh, darkened the doors of churches in the 50s and 60s, saw a very different kind of community and congregation. Um, churches prior to World War II were based on a rural model. We worshipped at 11 o'clock because you could milk the cows and do your chores and then come to church. We worshipped at dark 30 right after the sun went down, because you could do the evening chores and do that. Wednesday night was prayer meeting, and there was this kind of rhythm that was part of the rural word, lunch on the grounds after church, singing the old hymns, people knew each other, all that kind of... And the churches that moved into the cities after World War II 
followed that model, but that model began to fall, break down. As all of these other things in the culture happen. So we struggled with denominations. Denominations were, there were Catholics, and there were Presbyterians, and there were Lutherans, and there were uh, Baptists, and there were Pentecostals. And we weren't quite sure that the other one was really maybe even saved. Denominationalism started out by just saying, we see it this way, you see it this way. Okay, we're still brothers, but we have to, we have to do it our own way. By the 50s and 60s, there was questions of whether or not the other people were going to heaven. And the churches were not able to reach out very well. And so parachurch organizations like Youth for Christ, Campus Crusade, drew uh, into a notion of we're going to go out and reach people. Navigators will reach uh, the military and Youth for Christ will reach high school and Campus Crusade will reach college and the Gideons will reach people in motels and we'll do that. We'll bring those people back into the churches. But they never came back into the churches. Those organizations took on a life of their own. And the churches began to be struggling uh, with this notion. And what seemed to be working was this push for evangelism, a dropping of community and discipleship, and the church then decided it would become like a parachurch. So the priority now was on church growth and evangelism. Sunday school that used to be a discipling thing was now an evangelistic tool. Youth groups that didn't exist prior to the 50s now became a place to evangelize troubled kids in the neighborhood. Everything was about getting people in. Whoopi Goldberg's getting butts in the chairs. But that's just the nickels and noses game, and that became a problem. So in order to do that, when you tried to bring those people into the church, they'd go, you're singing those hymns? And you're reading that text? And you're saying, thee, thou, and whither? I, we, I can't relate to that. So we had to be relevant. So we developed seeker-friendly worship. We'll still sing Amazing Grace, but it'll be to the tune of House of the Rising Sun. I was part of this. I know how this worked. The idea was we would go to them, bring the gospel to them, and then woo them back to us. But what happened is we never wooed them back to us. What happened is they altered us. We became like them. At the same time, people said, I can't, I can't understand the Bible. So we got a plethora of new translations and new versions, even a love language Bible, whatever that means. Okay? In other words, now I have a Bible that says things the way I like them said. And a worship service that worships the way I like to worship. That's part of that. You can see that in the church, they were beginning to do what the world was doing rather than affecting the world to be more like the church. The charismatic movement came out of the Pentecostal churches into the denominational churches and the non-denominational churches and began to say, God talks to you directly. How does he talk to you? Well, you'll feel it in your heart. That postmodern thing. And therefore, 
what I feel in my heart is authentically God, and the Bible has to be interpreted to be consistent with that. And if God speaks to us all individually, we don't really need the text. And I don't need your interpretation of the text, because God gave me a verse this morning. You guys know the words. We got entrepreneurial clergy. The seminaries are, who wants to go to cemetery? Right? Who's going to do that? What we need is we need someone who can really do these newfangled things and keep people in and get butts in the chairs. And these entrepreneurial clergy got a call from God that they're going to be a pastor. And when a bunch of people showed up, it's clearly the blessing of God. And we have the blind and the stupid leading the ignorant down the path of feelings. Welcome to the American churches. The economic world came into crisis, so the church turned to a business model. The pastor is the CEO, the board is in charge, and the congregation is just the pay and pray crowd. And they can go to Edwards Theater or they can go to this place. So you better be entertaining and you better be good. And you better have stuff that they like and then you will keep them. And if you're not the latest thing happening, they're going to head somewhere else. We took our intellectualism and turned it into apologetics. I see your verse and raise you too. Let me tell you why these guys are wrong. Let me tell you why these guys are wrong. Let me tell you why these guys are wrong. And let's be political in our apologetics. And for the most part, apologetics does nothing of value for the church anymore. Now the one thing that's got the world really happening is media. Everybody's doing this all the time, right? We're getting information constantly. The sources, who knows, right? But the information is there. And Christians are pulled into that too. But the Christian media is a joke. Christian media is often a poor version of other medias. And when it's more qualitative, it becomes a copycat version of the cultural media, which is more about presentation than content. So we have no way of being aware of the larger community of Jews and Christians in the world and the local context. We have no idea what's going on among God's people beyond our own local areas. And part of the problem is that the news in Christian media is always tied to somebody's prophetic ministry or evangelism and fundraising. And so we're not getting information about our fellow believers around the world. So what does this mean? Well, I think the situation is obvious. The culture of America and Europe is indifferent to hostile towards Jews and Christians and the biblical foundations of our faith. The culture has shifted in the last hundred years to a place where a return is not possible. We'll talk about this down the road. But a lot of evangelicals have pinned their hopes on the current administration. And the backlash that's going to come as a result of this administration is not going to go on the administration. It's getting beat up now. It's going to come back on us because we're going to be seen as the ones who put that administration there. 
So, we don't know if this is going to continue towards full persecution. But it is certain that you and I are raising children and grandchildren in a post-Christian America where 90% of their influence is non-religious. And that's what the books are talking about. And the belief that you can stick your kid in a, in a, uh, in a religious school or you can do a, you bring them to church once an, uh, a week for an hour and that's going to undo that. You simply have to go back and look at your own teenage years and you know that's not going to work. Many of you, by the skin of your teeth, stayed in the faith. And some of you, it's only the grace of God. That's clearly me. And that was a much more, in my case, a much more Christian environment. In fact, I believe that many non-Christians, when I was growing up, knew the scriptures better and more than Christians sitting in churches do today. They memorized more verses. They had more biblical stories that they knew. The culture had permeated in it Judeo-Christian stuff. That is no longer out there. And the stuff that's out there is just atrocious. So, our fellow believers, like the proverbial frog in a pot, are being brought to boil and are not fully aware, even though these books indicate that some people are beginning to wake up. But even if the Jewish and Christian communities wake up tomorrow morning to this threat, in most cases, the religious systems that they belong to are not functional towards kingdom living. They're functional towards a religious add-on to the present culture. So we have to reestablish our homes and congregations to form and reinforce the faith in ourselves and our children and our converts. And that requires intentionality and difficult choices. Now at this point you're probably saying, I've been hearing this for 20 years. And some of you have been hearing it from me for 40 years. And the truth is, you haven't done it. You've done little bits, a little push, sleep it off. Ooh, there's a new Star Wars movie out. Let's go do that. All these things in the culture are pulling us. And we just put it off a little bit because we got time. Well, the time is now. If it isn't done now, it's going to be the panic process, not the intentional one. Now, most people will wait for the storm to actually hit. And then they're going to run to the church to get supplies that they think will work on their own. The Bible calls that foolishness. And it's described in the parable of the wise and foolish virgins who just put it off until the time came and then said, oh, help us, help us, help us. And the ones who prepared couldn't help them. Because they could barely help themselves. It's going to be that difficult. The Disciple Center was established to address this. 
when I was a much younger person. And even we have become sluggish and less committed to the task. We have to get back to the goals for which we're founded or all we're really doing is coming in here and sitting for an hour once in a while. And the front lines, as these guys are going to say, is going to be your home. This is the second level. So what I want to talk about next week are the actual threats. What are, what's actually going uh, to happen with your kids. You, it, some of you will already know that it's happening and what's going to happen with your grandchildren and, and what's going to happen with you. Uh, but I didn't have time to go into much of that uh, at this point because I wanted to cover these and allow for a longer Q&A uh, so that we can do that. So uh, let's pray.